0: Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. All right, folks. In this episode, I'm proud to bring you Christopher goes Christopher is the lead for the Inter-Blockchain Communication Protocol development in the Cosmos ecosystem, and um, uh, an all-around smart guy, so... Um, Christopher Christopher and I had a great conversation um, in which I kind of plied him trying to find out some of the dangers and potential pitfalls of creating a world of seamless integration and communication between blockchains. We go deep into some of the governance and social construct stuff and um, periodically use a pretty fun metaphor around um, island Evolutionary biology theory, and um, I hope you enjoy um, this episode. It was uh, it was a deep one. Um, yeah. So um, I'm here with Chris Goes, who's calling in from Berlin, and excited to have a awesome conversation. Thanks for joining, Chris. Thank you. Um, excited yeah, to so, Just a little context. Um, we were. We sort of had a abbreviated, but um, I th- I think very interesting conversation uh, while we were in Berlin together. Sort of after the um, hackathon ended and everybody was kind of unwinding, and um, I sort of wanted to just dig into some of the the topics and themes that we were talking about. You know, I mean, kind of the aim of of the podcast that I'm working on is to kind of kind of approach the uh, almost like the philosophical underpinnings of what's happening, what's emerging, how different people are approaching things. And, you know, we were sort of in the middle of that. And, uh, yeah, so I'm just excited to to connect. Um, but the last little piece of context and sort of framing for our conversation is um, I really appreciated your blog post. Um, let me see, what was it called? Um, in which you were sort of...
1: Yeah. Comparative advantages of distributed ledgers. That's yeah. the one.
0: Yep, that's the one. And so kind of like, you know, wanting to hold that also as is, is a conversation topic, you know, what what are we evolving and what does that mean for business and society and and what about that is super exciting to you, really. So that's kind of like the big framing. Um, do you mind just sharing a little bit about like why the heck you're devoting your life force and energy into the crypto space and blockchain? Like, what brought you here?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, in retrospect, I, I suspect I could construct a narrative to fit the path, but in truth, a lot of it was coincidental. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I encountered Bitcoin at age sixteen or something, uh, and and my use case was pretty. Uh, uh, I don't know, uh, pretty mundane. I wanted to rent a virtual private server uh, for building a website or something. This was back in the days when, when you wanted a website, you had to rent a server. Uh, and I couldn't get a credit card because I wasn't uh, of legal age in the United States. So I said, hmm, is there any other way I could like purchase this thing online? I, didn't, I don't recall why I didn't just ask my parents, but I was convinced that I had to do it uh, of my own means. And I found Bitcoin, which was, uh, at that point, I, I didn't understand, certainly didn't understand the entire uh, technological underpinnings. I just understood Bitcoin as a digital, decentralized, peer-to-peer currency, uh, which I can mine some of, and then <laughs> rent to virtual private service. That's what I did. Uh, and then that got me more into the fundamentals of the technology uh, because it was sort of I was very curious as to how this thing could exist and work uh and and I investigated it and honestly uh after using bitcoin for a little while uh, sort of gave up because i thought the uh it's it's or at least as i interpret it stated goal of becoming a peer to peer cash was i thought really unlikely to be realized because of scalability problems that weren't being addressed because bitcoin really didn't have uh, privacy in practice, uh, both due to fundamental, you know, details of the protocol, uh, it's linkable, but also due to how people used it. Most people didn't use new addresses for every transaction, which I think Satoshi assumed would happen, That turned out to be a big way. Anyway. So I didn't. I did mostly. Uh, after I took a serious look at Ethereum and Zcash and some of the uh, Generation 2, I guess you could say, projects, and was much more convinced that they would be able to host really interesting uh, you know, platforms for new kinds of economic activity, new kinds of social coordination, new kinds of models in ways that I thought were pretty unique that companies, or some companies building platforms hadn't been able to do successfully, often maybe the governments hadn't been able to do successfully or hadn't tried to do. So I'm, I'm interested in both, uh, you could say both the technical side, as I have a technical background in computer science, but also very much so in the applied technology and society side, how this ends up translating into, you know, things deployed in the real world, Used by people who don't, who certainly don't, and uh, oughtn't need to understand every detail of how they work, but to provide genuine utility uh, uh, and improve improve people's lives.
0: Yeah. So, so right now you're um, working on the inter-blockchain communication protocol with um, the Tendermint team and and people from all you know a broader ecosystem as well. Um, Do you mind sharing a little bit about, um, you know, maybe just like superficially, you know, on a pattern level, what that work is? And then I think what's maybe more interesting is how is that going to, what, what evolution is that going to catalyze in, you know, the internet really, or how people are transacting in the internet?
1: Sure, sure, sure. Uh, so the inter-blockchain communication protocol is designed as uh, uh, data authentication or you could say message authentication and transport protocol uh, operating between blockchains just like sort of, TCP and TLS are uh, transport and authentication protocols between computers so that computers on opposite sides of the world can send messages to each other over the internet infrastructure understand it and communicate, and that ultimately translates to higher level applications like email or instant messaging. So I hope that IBC will enable blockchains to authenticate and send messages to each other, so separate, sovereign consensus algorithms like Zcash, Ethereum, Cosmos, Bitcoin, etc., uh, And that on top of that, transport and authentication can be built user protocols that allow people to move their funds around to different chains, allow them to create uh, composite contracts or composite, Uh, sets of logic that constitute uh, lower level interactions on multiple chains and in between chains and allow different, uh, maybe even allow in the the, uh, end state, the sovereign topology of different blockchains to reflect kind of sovereignty in the real world, to allow communities to build their own chains, to allow different stakeholder sets who want to adhere to particular Uh, particular rules to choose what rules they want to adhere to, find other adherents, create their own uh, distributed ledger to build that commons or what have you, uh, but then still interact with other uh, ledgers and other rule sets insofar as their rule sets intersect and can be mutually comprehensible. And that intersection point is IBC because they need to agree upon some standards, say for transferring tokens or transferring access rights or uh, making contract calls across many chains, but they can disagree on other parts of their state machine
0: right, so <clears throat> there's a couple really interesting pieces there. I think um, one that I'd like to delve into is um, why is it important to have sovereign sovereignty over you know a blockchain or a state machine how what's the interaction in your mind between kind of like the human side of this, where there's communities making agreements with one another and the technological side where those agreements are being represented in a digital way, you know, and, and why is it important to have sovereignty um, there instead of just, for instance, like a single kind of like universal um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. protocol?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think there are two almost separable, uh, categories of reason, Uh, and one one category of reason is uh, local control. So if many people are going to uh, interact together using a blockchain, sort of by virtue of choosing to use that chain, they have chosen a set of rules. And different people around the world doing different things are going to want different sets of rules to govern those economic transactions, those data exchanges, uh, et cetera.
0: Can you and give me a- an example of, of some of the types of rules that people might choose to like hard code and maintain um, through a consensus algorithm? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So certainly there are basic rules uh, for implementing something like money uh, governing uh, ensuring fungibility and ensuring uh, that only someone who has ownership uh, by virtue of controlling a private key knowing the private key can spend the funds and those rules are agreed upon by pretty much everybody but there may be quite different rules about the ways in which those transactions uh, about more detail in which those transactions are settled for example uh in many countries there is something called a value-added tax uh where uh at certain points in the supply chain, uh, consumer or firm which is purchasing something uh, will pay a percentage tax on the transaction that gets at least theoretically routed to fund public goods. Uh, And different people with different preferences on public goods funding might want different value added taxes and they would want to uh, test out maybe their economic philosophy uh, in a sovereign network that. Uh, Impose the rules that they agreed upon. So maybe it could be a high tax, but then while allowing people t- to opt out of that uh, in a different sovereign network, that maybe they wouldn't receive the public goods in question. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, like it's a very a very specific example. Uh, one thing you could do—I'm not saying it should be done—but one thing you could do, and it would be interesting to see it tried on a blockchain, is to levy a value-added tax and fund the community. Yeah, so you could try to fund further technological development along some particular axes. Uh but it's
0: with sort of what Zcash effect. did with the founder fund, right? Essentially, the founder fee. It's kind of like it, kind of like it, yeah. Uh,
1: I mean, that was uh, a tax on inflationary rewards. So in some sense, it traded off security of the chain uh, because miners were being paid a bit less. Although in practice, I don't know if it's a linear relationship or not. But uh, you could also trade off uh, actual, like you'd pay a bit of a fee to use the chain both are possible.
0: Right. <clears throat> yeah. Interesting. Um, so the image that I get as you're speaking is sort of like, um, I guess I have a, a background, um, in which I spent a lot of my life exploring kind of different forms of, um, governance and sort of styles of inhabitation community wise, you know, um, eco villages, intentional communities, where people are sort of Mm -hmm. actively experimenting in kind of what are the social norms and ways of decision making that make sense for, you know, fairly small groups of people, um, you know, neighborhood scale, usually, or maybe small town scale. Um, Mm -hmm. And the image that I just got was of that same sort of experimentation taking place, but, you know, even between communities, and it's sort of, you know, it may be place-based, but it might also not be. It might be more sort of uh, philosophical. Um, you know, g- groups of people who have similar philosophies about economics. You know, everything from a very laissez-faire. You know, no taxation for the provision of public goods, for instance, to uh, groups of people who are like, no. You know, we 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 all want to sort of tax, uh, a self-tax or tithe or something. It allows people to sort of like simultaneously um, experiment and make agreements with one another, with with groups of people to create economies that can also interoperate. And so um, I guess I'm curious, why is interoperating and exchange between those groups important? Why isn't it enough to just sort of have the tools so that anyone anywhere could experiment Amongst themselves, um, what is it about the like exchange between experimenting groups that have sovereignty that feels so important to to sort of like this experiment and this um, sort of evolution of our of our you know of the global economy really. Mm-hmm. Uh- One way I think of phrasing
1: it is that interoperation allows you to avoid the tyranny of network effects. So let's say that there are several totally sovereign systems. Uh, And those totally sovereign systems are, you know, at, at least at first, built completely consensually by people who want to adhere to different sets of rule sets, and that's fine. But then, you know, some of them are going to be more effective at producing something of value uh, to other people who are in a different set. And, uh, you know, conversely, someone who subscribed to say blockchains A and B, someone on blockchain A is really great at producing, let's just talk about food, lettuce. Someone on blockchain B is going to be really great at producing Uh, salad dressing (laughs) and Mm. obviously it makes sense for them to exchange but at the moment if they have no way of interoperating and and maybe these blockchains are actually setting settling payments are the only currencies they have are sovereign uh, then they can't exchange so often in practice what will happen if they don't have interoperation is that uh, they'll make some in the best case they'll make some compromises on the rule sets and together like merge but often one of these groups will be smaller and it will sort of be forced to choose between uh, eating salad or uh, or remaining salad. And if it chooses to eat salad, as in, because in many cases the network effects dominate, we're not only, I mean, if you participate in the modern economy, uh, the depth of the supply chain that leads to uh, products on the shelf of the grocery store is immense. I mean, probably tens of millions, if you go through the firms and all of the firms which supplied those firms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it's deeply interconnected. And that deep interconnection is powerful or efficient It enables people to specialize in uh, different skill sets, different tasks, and it enables people to sort of choose what they want to do, even while uh, benefiting from the specialization of others. Uh, But it requires that everyone agrees on uh, at least some rule sets. And interoperation is a way of allowing the rule sets which you choose to cooperate on to still uh, to interact with rule sets on upon which you differ. So you might differ on the uh, amount of, I don't know, VAT you want to pay on your transactions or one, one blockchain, blockchain A has founders rewards going to uh, the developers and blockchain B doesn't. But if you can find some interoperation protocol that will allow you to agree, Uh, And authenticated automatically between the blockchains on the kind of transaction for buying uh, For exchanging lettuce for salad dressing and maybe some modified uh, tax rates for that transaction then both parties benefit Mm
0: -hmm. Cool So, you know, one of the
1: somewhat simplified example.
0: Yeah, but I think it's useful so then One of the things that we were sort of starting to get into in Berlin was I was sort of sharing um, a little bit about, um, you know, I have a background in ecology, um, evolutionary biology. And so I sort of tend to think of things in terms of these sort of like living system metaphors. You know, um, how do we look? um, You know, we have several hundred years of pretty robust scientific examination of the natural world around us um how how can that inform um, how we understand wh- what what we understand about the evolution of complex systems, essentially, which I think what you're talking about in this sort of like interconnected global economy, um, it's it's a complex system. it's it's uh, it, I, I would propose that it likely follows the same laws of that, you know, um, the Amazon rainforest follows and the enormous complexity and sort of emergent sort of trophic flows that, you know, forest expresses. And so, you know, I got to thinking about um, sort of genetic flows and thinking about the relationship between genetic flows and digital flows of information, just like these are just flows of information. And I started to, to, to think about, you know, one of the most famous examples in evolutionary biology is the Galapagos Islands. And very well studied, you know, it's, you know, the the story of how Darwin sort of realized that there were different finches that had evolved um, from a single ancestor on different islands to have sort Uh of specialties, right? They had different beaks, they have different, you know, plumage and different sizes one's you know eating bugs and the other is eating seeds etc right and that that evolution and sort of speciation was um, made possible by the kind of like by the separation between the islands themselves and the mainland and then uh, what happened when humans uh, well we, we should say um, sort of Western civilization, humans, uh, Europeans, found the Galapagos is it started to be, you know, historically what happened is it became basically like a pirate outpost and they would eat the tortoises and they dropped off, for instance, they started dropping off livestock. They dropped off goats, some rats ran ashore, so there became this conduit for the exchange of genetic information essentially. New animals were introduced to the island. Um, and it had catastrophic effects on the existing genetic diversity because all of the animals had not evolved in like a large continental situation with those evolutionary pressures. And that's been a common story throughout time is that when the conduit was open, sort of the genetic conduit was open, it um, homogenized, it essentially homogenized the, the diversity of an island sort of biogeography and genetic pool. And so, mm, mm-hmm. I'm just curious, is that analogy one that um, holds if we translate it across to the digital world and sort of the world of the human economy? Um, if so, um, how does that relate to this, um, these twin, these twin projects of sovereignty, sovereign chains and interoperability? And yeah, just like uh, a thought provocation. What does that, what springs to mind in terms of, you know, yeah, kind of an inquiry around that analogy?
1: Mm-hmm. I would... I think answer in two parts uh, and the first part is, is a definite similarity so if you think about the uh, evolutionary processes going on in the Galapagos Islands before uh, they were joined the mainland by a genetic conduit uh, you mentioned that there was a lot of sort of parallel uh, parallel evolutionary tracks because everything was quite local there was intermixing but all of these different species uh, were you know bifurcating, rejoining, uh, evolving, in response to uh, different, differing natural selection pressures, and just differing random input in the form of genetic recombination, evolving in parallel into many different unique strains uh, of fancy plumage or unique capabilities or bodily function, et cetera. Uh, and one thing that's necessary for that kind of evolutionary process is The ability to run it all in parallel and another thing that's necessary is the ability to exchange periodically between different strands uh, with some limitations on you know locality right Uh, if all if all of the creatures were competing in the like exact same evolutionary market or so to speak competing for the same resources at the same time and there was no locality you would uh, end up with maybe a few species dominating But if all of the uh, species were never able to genetically recombine with each other, uh, you might not end up with so much variety. Would would that be accurate?
0: I think so. I think um, that evolutionarily speaking, genetic diversity like genotype to phenotype expression and phenotype being like an actual species and its behaviors and like what it looks like is directly related to the quantity of sort of niches which is directly related to the diver mm-hmm. like the, the geographic and, and um, climatological and ecological diversity. So if you have, you know, like on the slopes of the Andes going down into the Amazon, that's like the highest genetic diversity anywhere because, you know, you have from a high altitude to a low altitude. You have all this edge, sort of like a coral reef. You have all this edge. There's there's a million different places for different um, entities to specialize, right? <laughs> Whereas if you have a flat surface, you know, like a parking lot, just compare a parking lot to coral reef. Right and you can sort of see the genetic diversity between the two you know you may be <laughs> dandelions springing up out of the parking lot versus you know millions of species on a coral reef fish and bacteria and you know anemones and other things, so in the Galapagos, you know I think the um, I think it's well said that there's sort of these um, rare Rare and controlled moments of genetic exchange between parallel evolving um, it, parallel evolving orga- organisms in slightly different niches, right? So there's there's like a, mm-hmm. there's some sort of sort of like firewall or compartmentalization between them, and it allows them to s- specialize in a particular way. That if there was no like ocean between those islands, and they were all in the same place, a a generalized strategy would win. Like, like there would be a single finch that would, you know, both eat insects and um, eat seeds, or whatever. I mean, that's not completely precise, but I think it's good enough for the analogy.
1: Yeah, well, insofar as, in the analogy, the so the evolutionary topology we're talking about here is the topology of, since for now it's going to be humans using these blockchains or humans telling computers to use these blockchains, the topology of human desires and rule set preferences and um, I don't know, if political maybe philosoph- philosophical is a better word and philosophical positions on how you know their world ought to be run. Uh, and my guess is that that topology does have a lot of niches, uh, although, you know, we'll kind of have to test it out. Uh, right now, I think it's largely dominated by uh, uh, large political coalitions, uh, though, you know, and, and the the question is, is that because of a lack of, I don't know if the analogy succeeds here or not, but do large political coalitions which kind of fail to represent the underlying diversity of niches, but instead sum up a bunch and put them together. Do those results from constraints on physical space? Do they result from the difficulty in interoperability? You know, there's some analogy here to, I don't know about uh, Galapagos Islands, but certainly to nation states. If you're a large nation state, it's easier to negotiate like trade agreements, right? So being a bloc has its advantages, but you also don't accurately represent uh, the real diversity of political and philosophical positions of your constituency. So in some ways, if smaller blocks could, uh, uh, would suffer less from the sort of lack of network effect, then maybe uh, wider diversity would be able to coexist while still you know, interoperating uh, for mu- mutual benefit.
0: So, so the idea here is to sort of have the benefit of network effect um, without the tyranny of network effect um would that be yeah that's right that's right and to allow
1: um in some ways even to allow the stakeholders in a system to to choose some of the parameters of the evolutionary niche right to choose both the parameters of the evolutionary niche and the parameters of I don't know if genetic, genetic exchange here is like the exchange of ideas for blockchains. I don't know if it's Yeah, like-
0: yeah, like me, you know, you could just replace gene with me, perhaps.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we Certainly, I'm all for a memetic interoperability uh, as well as sort of interoperability at a point in the, you know...
0: But what's interesting... ...of the I'm, ecosystem... The, the, it's, what's interesting to me, though, is I think... There's a nuance, there's a subtlety here, which is the term when you're using it, when, when the Cosmos ecosystem uses it maybe more broadly, interoperability comes along with ideas about sovereignty. Um, there's like encapsulation or boundaries around interoperability. The interoperability is in order to, I think what I'm picking up on, it's like in order to preserve agency, actually. Whereas... I also think the term interoperability gets used in the opposite way, you know, in in how do we impose like standard, Hmm. like a standard, um, not in terms of just like a schema or a language that allows us to communicate, but a standard that is enforced around even, you know, what is possible or the behaviors that are acceptable or whatever that might mean. So, Anyway, is that accurate? Does that sound accurate that there's like something baked into when you use the word interoperability? There is like it, it in order to understand it in its wholeness, there's like it's meshed with kind of like agency and sovereignty. Um as like
1: I think the, that's absolutely true. Maybe we should call it polycentric interoperability or yeah, uh, sovereign interoperability. The idea is that uh We want the stakeholders of each of these individual rule sets, distributed ledgers, to not only control their rule set, but control uh, the ways in which their rule set interacts with other rule sets, the ways in which data and assets and value uh, to the stakeholders of the system can be transferred or exchanged with other systems which might disagree on other rules. Uh, We want the stakeholders to be able to explore both the design space of sovereign rule sets and the design space of agreed standards for interoperability.
0: Yeah. So there's a, there's something about this, which is it's just as much around giving people the ability to create boundaries. You know, to, as it is to create open flows.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. I want to go back to the, Galapagos Islands case. So uh, while in a parallel life, I would have studied it. Alas, I did not study uh, too much of uh, biology or the history of that area, of the world. Uh, so I wonder when the genetic conduit to the mainland was established and all of these uh, you know, local diverse species were kind of outcompeted by species from the mainland. Is there... a particular hypothesis as to what the cause of that was? Was it that there was more evolutionary pressure on the mainland and it had led to you know, species that were just more competitive? Was it that the niches on the island changed because of like resource extraction?
0: Yeah, so um, this, uh, you can sort of open up, as you could imagine, an entire can of worms there um, and competing hypotheses um, in general, I think the idea is when you have, uh, you know, a continent scale kind of, um, gene, gene interactions, um, random mutation, there's so many more, uh, mutations. There's, there's different pressures as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and simply there's, I also think there's sort of like, uh, there's genetic expressions that just through random chance never made it. And so new and novel, um, the the, the genes, the organisms that are out in these siloed places have the ability to sort of like drift into niches and evolve in directions that they never would have been able to otherwise. Mm -hmm. So um, for instance, you can have, Uh, birds that nest on the ground because there's no cats, Mm, mm -hmm. right? And that bird can then have this cascading complexity of interactions that create other niches and sort of like a whole little ecosystem evolves around due to the random fact that that there are no cats on the island and the bird could survive, Mm -hmm. whereas on the mainland there are cats. And the cat will kill the bird because it's just sitting there on its nest, you know, hanging out. I um, see, I see. Yeah.
1: Well, then, in the analogy, if the Cosmos network is the Galapagos Islands and the United States mainland is, or I or, guess uh, Central American mainland is Facebook's Libra, uh, yeah. then I think the idea of IBC in this analogy is that it would give the Galapagos Islands the ability to choose the uh, genetic. Uh, combinations that they will accept through that genetic conduit. It won't just be open to anything. It will be controlled, and that through that control, uh, they might seek to retain sovereignty while, uh, you know, right. allowing. Some There's like
0: a quarantine system. It's like that's right. Know, that's right. When a boat comes, when a boat comes, somebody hops on, and you know, is you know, are there any cats on board? We don't want cats because we have this ground nesting bird, and we would rather not kill it. that's the sort of yeah Um, yeah interesting very interesting Um, so how you know then the question becomes you know um is Facebook's Libra going to you know by the time that that because that boat already is sailing right so will um You know, not to be another person who's just asking when IBC, but when when IBC, like is that race between like the conduit being open because that's just what's going to happen? That ship is coming. um, You know, are we going to have the ability to sort of like stop that boat before it gets on shore and, you know, make sure there aren't any cats?
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know how uh the analogy is interesting, but some parts of it probably don't fit I mean Facebook's Libra is not quite the result of you know millions of years of continental evolution. Uh, I think it's the result of of uh, the product of a rather short lived at least on uh geological time scale uh, <laughs> for <company>. sure <laughs> yeah, yeah, so but uh, insofar as allowing control over boats, yeah, I guess uh, what does mm, it's not it's not that the physical analog here is difficult. I mean, it's sort of like IBC will impose this magical screen, which allows boats to pass through only if they fulfill, you know, particular restrictions. Yeah, um, that,
0: that action, that action of like the person yeah, yeah. auditing the boat. That happens. It's automated, and it happens nearly instantaneously, right? Well, it's automated,
1: and it's uh, based on sort of a whitelist, not a blacklist. The IBC protocol would have the Galapagos Islands uh, state precisely which genetic forms they are willing to accept, and under what terms, and allow only those through, and allow only you know certain genetic forms to go back.
0: Uh, Right. So that
1: seems like a pretty. Effective uh, defense against uh, infection, uh, but you know maybe the danger here is that all of the you know humans will decide to use Facebook's Libra, uh, you know despite it compromising their privacy, despite known problems, uh, just because of the dominance of the network effect. And insofar as that's true, I think interoperating. I don't know if I want to draw specific conclusions on Facebook, people let's just say conceivably yeah. Yeah. Ex- conceivably, and there there will be other cases of this too. I'm sure, like central banks might release uh, stable coins or something, which generally I think would be a positive development. But uh, larger networks may launch that provide you know the benefit of uh, immediate, quite wide user base. And I think different parts of the Cosmos network, different blockchains using IBC, can make different decisions, but those uh, many might be well-served by choosing to interoperate with the larger networks and giving consumers of those larger networks uh, not only the option to access the smaller ones, but maybe a taste of what they're missing, uh, you know, given that they could opt instead for this better rule set and keep all their assets. So, so this is, interoperability this is- reduces the exit cost in some sense of Libra, right? Like if you can move all your Libra coins over IBC off of Libra, And why, what
0: do you need Libra for (laughs) anymore? Right. Yeah, interesting. It it may be that the sort of biophysical constraints that um, help form the conditions around gene flow and evolution of biological systems start to that analogy starts to be le- somehow less useful um in a sort of fully expressed digital world i'm i'm not sure i'm not sure if it is or isn't but you said a couple of things there around sort of making statements around like what might be good like or bad in relationship and so i'd love you to just unpack those like how on a just on a very personal level um how do you how do you define or explore the idea of good goodness and like you know make judgments about whether or not what you're focused on in in building new technology is going to create more good than bad or going to ameliorate bad or um yeah what's what's your sort of like guiding um, ethical approach? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Well, I, I
1: think my first answer is that my guiding approach is one of deep epistemological uh, uncertainty with regards to morality. I think it's really, really hard to know, uh, and not only in, in particular, but even more so in general, what the right thing is. Uh, so, and
0: I guess so start there, what, how would you describe your epistemology then? Like how, how do you make meaning? How is meaning explored? And um, g- given that you've just said it's, it's hard and complex, um, what is the approach to like interacting with that complexity and maybe surfacing from time to time with something that feels sort of uh, like solid ground?
1: Hmm. Uh, I guess I would say I, I try to approach uh, the question from a lot of different angles and sort of see what sticks. Uh, there are many useful, I don't know if this is apply in general, personally I find thought experiments useful or uh, sort of implications that would require data, which no one really has, but like uh, sort of Immanuel Kant's prescription of to... Yeah. To to take it to its extreme, as as if you would do, if in fact by your doing you created a rule by which everyone would do the same thing in the same circumstances. I'm misstating it slightly, but it captures the essence. That's a particularly useful tool, and the Rawlsian veil of ignorance—you know—that you should kind of decide as if you were, which I think has a very deep parallel with uh, with Kant's prescription that you should construct societies or at least Jules' rule sets on the basis of being a randomly selected member, not on the basis of who, in fact, you actually are. I think those are really uh, convincing examples uh, by which to reason. But I, and I would also say I take a, a really empiricist view that, uh, so, so, so not very deontological, at least not in the sense that I think there are specific rules about which actions are right or wrong. I think it's much more about you know the best rule set is kind of the rule set which leads to you know, the best outcome for the set of stakeholders uh, which it is which it is governing, and that I would view the process of my epistemological process as really a search for rule sets which are progressively better uh, than the rule set we have at the moment.
0: And and how do you. Make that determination. I think it was sort of baked into what you just said earlier, in terms of like an empirical approach grounded in a well, a
1: lot, a lot of a lot of it right now is in fact more about allowing more rule sets to uh, evolve in parallel and allowing more experimentation to happen. Uh, in some sense, I think experimentation is. Or, or allowing the evolutionary process to take place even at the level of things like ethical norms is the most powerful tool we have for searching a space which we really don't understand um, and i but I think that the ability of that search to uh, progress is is sort of threatened by edge case effects right like uh, if one system one rule set you know the United States, for example, decides to use nuclear weapons to eliminate other rule sets, now those other rule sets cannot go evolving in different directions. So I would be, I guess, almost more interested in trying to uh, realize the architecture required for safe uh, co-evolution of really different uh, ethical, moral norms, different social systems, uh, different Personal codes of ethics, even uh, and make sure that that can kind of happen without anyone posing such a fundamental existential risk to the entire system uh, that it could, you know, cause the whole evolutionary process to be stopped in its tracks, because that would be tragic. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I don't, I, I guess, I, I don't have a particular prescription for, uh, you know, I could. I, I suspect that uh, a lot of the. I, I, I don't have opinions on particular policy choices, really. Uh, I'm more, yeah, like, I think, uh, the more you did, there
0: is sort of a meta, there is a meta, um, sort of like, um, ethic there that I'm hearing, which is sort of that which um, sort of preserves and even increases the ability for. Um, sort of a polycentric multiplicity of approaches um, is best and should be sort of like focused on first um, in order to create that. And then, you know, you may, it sounds like I'm sure you have your own kind of personal ethics and taste and desires for the world that you'd like to to live in. But, you know, the the work at hand is to make sure that sort of like people beyond you can also um, be making choices.
1: Yeah, that's right. I would note that uh, my particular decision to focus on the meta level is contingent. It's not necessary. So if I didn't think there weren't such systemic risks, I would probably instead be focusing on like a particular system and evolving it in interesting directions. Uh, and I would think that that was the most valuable thing to do if it were the case that, like that probably was true like a few millennia ago, right? A few millennia ago, risks in the world were not very correlated. What happened to some tribe somewhere in the world would be very unlikely to affect another tribe uh, within their lifetimes, if ever. Uh, and so I would have focused on you know, developing better civilization or science or something like in a very local area. Uh, but right now, I think we almost have the opposite problem where there's tons and tons and tons of local development going on, but so much of it is you know, through pathways, really, I don't think anyone is in favor of, but no one quite knows how to stop. So much of it is causing systemic risk that we really ought to focus on those, right? there, are, I, I really do subscribe to the theory that uh, on the ethical level, it's a pretty fundamental precept that not only should we not discriminate across space so that hu- a human life and uh, Canada or the United States is just as valuable as a human life in India or Africa or anywhere in the world, but that we should not discriminate across time, that human lives in the future are just as valuable as human lives today. And if you take that position uh, you and, and you include uh, sort of some notion of comparative advantage where you spend time doing things in part because other people are unlikely to do them, mm-hmm. not a lot of people necessarily consider future lives to have equal value, or at least make decisions based on that consideration, then I think that leads you pretty quickly to focusing on ensuring that there will be many future lives and they will exist in some uh, evolutionary space where they have chances to try out different things and sort of sweep the landscape of different moral and ethical norms and really experiment with that. So I want the possibility of that happening.
0: Yeah, so it. yeah, cool. Well. So may it be, let's, let's make that happen. It sounds like, um, yeah, it sounds, I'm so what, what, what about you? How would you, I'll turn your question
1: back uh, if you don't mind.
0: Sure, yeah, yeah, I'm happy to to think about, think on that a little bit. So, um, so the question is, yeah, yeah. How do we, how do I personally create um, sort of a, a, yeah, I mean, ethical is probably a decent word to use here. Ethical or even epistemological approach to life, to deciding what I'm putting my energy into. Yeah, I think there are some similarities. Um, I tend to... It it's comes down to some simple sort of what appear to me very concrete uh, sort of biophysical truths. You know, we live on a planet hurtling through space that has mm-hmm. um I, I don't actually think like uh yeah it has a boundary it's singular and has a boundary around it and um w- humans are one part of that of that hole like you can look at the earth and you can say oh there's a discrete hole here um we are but a part of that hole um and so I tend to in the same way that you drew sort of like this ethical um, um, equivalency between any human anywhere on the earth, I would uh also draw the same ethical equivalency between uh, humans and any species on the earth mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, and And I would say that there's a similar i would i would resonate i resonate with the the idea that sort of like through time as well, you know. Um, so I sort of, what emerges out of that is, is my own sense that um, and then there's some other things that maybe are more intuitions or, or even approaching spiritual understandings that are less maybe empirical, which have to do with um, a sense that I have, which maybe I could you know, back into rationally, that humans are unique that it isn't, that there also exists, even though there's sort of like a value equivalency, there's also like this deep uniqueness of every organism. And um, humans in particular have this amazing uniqueness, which I don't actually think sort of compiles or distills down to just like cognitive or linguistic or sort of like tool making. I think it has more to do with... um, kind of like uh the potential role of a, of a singular species that ha- can either be um sort of like degenerative on a geological like like geological scale like we can create species extinction on the scale of an asteroid hitting the earth or mm-hmm. you know an ice age i also think we have the equal and opposite potential to be stewards of evolution and novelty and the expression of the full potential of life at a planetary scale as like a species. And that that has a lot to do with sort of uh, how we, um, we as a species connect our uh, sociocultural and economic uh, relationships to the directly to the welfare of um, the species upon which we actually depend as a member of a whole, right? And that, that you know, for lack of a better word, sort of reciprocity, although it's non-linear usually, like that non-linear reciprocity is um, what I think we're working on at region Network in particular, which is, you know, so how kind of, how do you create a um, new i guess kind of accounting system that allows for economic exchanges to account for the sort of um, nonlinear reciprocity necessary for that whole endeavor of the the human experience economy culture life um mm-hmm. for for the emergent phenomena to be an ever increasing uh to to be ever increasing health of our biosphere and the ecosystems that make it up, like that's to me, that's sort of like the ethical imperative in, in a very clear way of our generation, essentially. And I think uh, a lot of what um, IBC and Cosmos and and the sort of like this intersection between the cyber and the physical manifests through. Um, cryptographic and decentralized networks, I think that that, that the ability to experiment, to, to have active rapid experimentation on tuning the human economy to its regenerative potential and mm-hmm. doing that in a place sourced sort of like agent agency centric way is uh, is what's necessary because in order to achieve um, what I'm talking about, sort of like a, you know, Humans as a member of a super, super organism. I, I actually think the paradox is the, the pathway towards that is is through sort of uh, human will and agency and expression, not through some sort of like like impositioned sort of like eco-fascist standard or something like that. If that makes sense, like it actually has to come from the ground up, from from communities. Uh, yeah, individuals as well, but from communities in particular, like exploring that fully and making their own determinations, and um, then interoperating with one another. So, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of my like in a nutshell um, answer to that. I think, uh, yeah, planetary regeneration. You know, that's the that's the aim. That's my north star there. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that is all fascinating. And I would say, I mean, I think the stakes are uh, in the long term, even higher, uh, that if we can successfully, and we must do this first, but if we can successfully regenerate, uh, facilitate the regeneration of, we're not the only ones with agency, but successfully facilitate the regeneration of that ecosystem here on earth, you know, eventually we'll have the possibility to spread that ecosystem uh, to other planets, other solar systems, other galaxies, uh, which do not have life. If they have life, we should be careful before we interfere. But presuming that many exist which do not have life, then we could bring that life to them. Uh, and interestingly, I think probably this is the period, you know, if if we take some assumptions for granted and say that humanity, is, uh, that Earth is the only planet on which life has evolved, this is the period in galactic history when life will be most or at most systemic risk because once, once we succeed, and I I think we will succeed, but once we succeed in generating the ecosystem here on earth and then spreading outwards, uh, evolutionary tracks will start to be necessarily separated again by the hard limits on light speed and the even probably, uh, quite more constraining hard limits on transport speed of physical material, uh, unless we're very, very wrong about the laws of physics, which is always possible. But the indicators so far seem to indicate that once we get to uh, living ecosystems on Earth, on Proxima Centauri, on uh, other arms of the Milky Way, even other galaxies, uh, that those will start to take diverging tracks and sort of a, a new galactic ecosystem of really great cultural and biological diversity will be engendered.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, The sort of like in service to the centropic potential of life, uh, you know, go out into the universe and reverse entropy. (laughs) At least for a while. Yeah, 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 definitely. The sort of like, I kind of am reminded of, um, Ethan Buckman's uh, sort of um, recent talks on sort of uh, gradients of um, dissipation and like the eddy, sort of like these complex little life eddies and kind of thinking that, you know, I'm just mm-hmm. holding that in my mind. Yeah, well, um, I I think it's probably a good moment to work towards wrapping. Do you have... Um, yeah, I mean, A, any parting thoughts, and B, um, any you know, recommendations for um, either fiction or nonfiction books that um, people who were interested in this conversation might um, pick up in order to you know, go a layer deeper into what's inspiring you and your work? Mm.
1: Sure, that's a great question. Um, I would say that sort of my position on many of these issues has been informed by a wide variety of sources. A lot of it has been informed by uh, uh, the movement, which styles itself effective altruism, uh, which is focused on oftentimes pretty quantitative analysis of the best ways to do good. Uh, but they also go deep into the philosophical questions like how ethics ought to prioritize across space and time uh, and they come to you know sort of similar conclusions uh, and really I was inspired by some of that work so the conclusions are theirs, but that the that uh, future value of possible life you know really has such a high uh, moral weight that we ought to spend a lot of time ensuring that in fact that future possible life will be uh, able to exist in actuality. That The ecosystem on earth here continues and engenders it in the future. Uh, Terms of fiction. I've been reading more nonfiction recently. The most interesting piece of fiction I read in the past year was probably the three body problem uh, in the two subsequent uh, books in the trilogy, uh, which was translated from Chinese. So I highly recommend that. It deals with uh, a somewhat interesting game theoretical problem, which I won't spoil, and which I, don't hope, uh, which I hope is not realized because it would put at risk uh, some of this potential systemic risk lacking uh, intergalactic evolutionary uh, paradise, but I won't say any more.
0: <laughs> awesome. I like the I, I like the vision of the yeah, um intergalactic evolutionary paradise. Uh well I mean not paradise is probably I wasn't sure what word to search for because nature
1: is red in tooth and paw, right? It's not not maybe the human idea of utopia with, with no pain. I just mean uh sort of a cornucopia of evolutionary and cultural diversity.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I follow. I've, um Well, Chris, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking some time to chat. And uh, maybe we'll do it again uh, before too long.